Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. From time to time, I and a couple of court officials returned to the door of the jury room and listened for a while. Voices were raised and strong feelings expressed. Plainly, this inquest jury was torn. It did not wish to return a verdict of suicide. Neither did it really want to return an open verdict, one that indicates it cannot resolve the cause of death. What it really wanted to do was to return a verdict of murder. But Her Majesty's coroner had made it very clear in his summing up that a verdict of unlawful killing was not open to the jury, and it was not one he was prepared to accept. This was Southwark Coroner's Court in July 1983. It was the second inquest into the death of Roberto Calvi notoriously described as God's banker because of his close links with the Vatican. His body was discovered by a postman on the way to work early on the morning of 17th of June 1982, hanging by an orange noose from scaffolding beneath London's Blackfriars Bridge, still dressed in top coat, Patek Philippe watch on wrist. The coroner directed the jury that in order to find that Kelvey had been murdered, they had to be sure beyond reasonable doubt, but that was not possible on the evidence, and he withdrew that verdict from them. This was the second inquest. A year earlier, after a marathon one-day hearing of 12 hours that stretched late into the evening, a different coroner's jury reached a verdict of suicide by a majority. But the family challenged that decision in the High Court on the grounds that the inquest had been unduly rushed. The verdict was set aside and a fresh inquest ordered before a different coroner at a different court. For this co-celeb, the family had instructed George Carmen QC to represent their interests. Another heavyweight, Richard Ducan QC, was to represent other interests. The inquiry was to last for two weeks and was far more searching than the first. A banker by profession and chairman of Bank Ambrosiano, the day before his death, Kelvey had been sacked and his secretary had jumped to her death from a fifth floor window at the bank's headquarters. The secretary left what was described as an angry note, condemning the damage that Calvi had inflicted upon the bank and its employees. An Italian judicial inquiry found she had committed suicide. Shortly afterwards, the bank collapsed with debts of 800 million pounds, and the creditors included the Sicilian Mafia. A year earlier, following criminal investigations, 
Calvi was tried in connection with several billion lira that had been exported illegally. It resulted in his conviction and a four-year suspended prison sentence, together with a fine that ran into many millions of dollars. Released on bail pending appeal, Calvi attempted suicide. Correspondence between Calvi and others from the bank and the Vatican confirmed that illegal transactions were common knowledge. Much money had been siphoned off through the Vatican Bank, the main shareholder of Banco Ambrosiano, which had a holding of 10%. Calvi disappeared from his Rome apartment on 10th of June, 1982. It was later discovered that he fled initially to Venice under the name of Gian Roberto Calvini. He hired a private plane to London via Zurich. Until then, it seems that Roberto Calvi was invisible in London. Nobody the police interviewed remembered seeing him. Nobody admitted to meeting him. There are no records of what he said and did in London. The police were forced to admit that they had no idea how he got from Chelsea Cloisters to Blackfriars Bridge, but the next time he was seen was hanging there. His clothing was stuffed with bricks and he was carrying around $15,000 cash in three different currencies. Calvi was a member of Licho Gelli's illegal Masonic P2 Lodge. They referred to themselves as Frati Neri, or Black Friars. Some believe that Calvi was murdered as a Masonic warning because of the symbolism associated with the word Black Friars. Professor Keith Simpson, an eminent Home Office pathologist, gave evidence at the inquest. It was suggested by George Carmen QC that it would have been possible for Roberto Calvi to have been disabled by the effect of chloroform and then curare-like drugs administered, sufficient to paralyze him and then strangled. Or after he was paralyzed, taken to Blackfriars by boat and hanged from the scaffolding until he died. Confirming that the death was due without any question to asphyxia by hanging, because evidence of drowning was entirely lacking. Professor Simpson said there was no evidence to suggest that the hanging was other than a self-suspension in the absence of marks of violence. He added that the way the body was slumped in a kneeling posture was typical of suicide by hanging. There was no evidence to suggest that Kelvy had been strangled or tied in any way. If he had been strangled and the body suspended, there would have been some other ligature marks. Professor Simpson said, there were no marks of fingers or fingernails, which one would find in cases of strangulation by hand. I am satisfied that possibility can be altogether excluded. He added that because chloroform did not usually cause instant unconsciousness, usually the victim struggled. The theory advanced on behalf of the family was that the mafia was concerned 
that Calvi would be able to avoid prison by becoming an informer. They therefore assisted his flight from Italy after telling him he had lost his appeal, when in truth no final decision had been made. It is said that he was accompanied by Silvano Vitor, acting as minder, assisted by Flavio Carboni, a confident and wealthy Sicilian businessman. Armed with fake Venezuelan passports, Calvi and Carboni ended up in the United Kingdom. The Mafia arranged for Calvi to stay at a furnished flat at Chelsea Cloisters on Sloan Avenue. London was supposed to be a stopover before traveling to South America to be joined by his family. Flavio Carboni and Silvano Vitor were brought to London and cross-examined at some length by George Carmen, who suggested that they had flown from London back to Italy only hours after Calvi's body had been found and that they were involved in the death. Carboni responded that he knew nothing about Calvi's flight from Italy or his death until he read about it later, and so did Vitor. The difficulty for Calvi's family was that the police took the view from the very outset that this was a suicide. No doubt this was influenced by the statement they had from his brother, Dr. Lorenzo Calvi, who said, that in 1981, Calvi had cut his wrist and swallowed a quantity of tranquilizers in a moment of desperation because of the prolonged psychological and physical stress proved by the unjust accusations of exporting currency from Italy for which he had been imprisoned. But he added that it was sheer speculation to say that Roberto had left Italy and jumped bail because he was doubtful or unhappy about the possible outcome of his appeal, or because he was on some hit list of one of the terrorist organizations. Add Professor Simpson's evidence and the limited options offered by the coroner, and it was perhaps unsurprising that the second inquest jury, albeit reluctantly, returned an open verdict. Afterwards, I spoke with Clara Calvi. Roberto's widow. And although she was relieved to some degree that at least the family had an open verdict to work with, she was convinced her husband had been murdered and the Vatican was behind it. Others, perhaps more compellingly, regarded the perpetrators as the mafia. What was clear to me, however, was the Calvi family would not leave it there. Nor did they. It is interesting that in later years, the Vatican has been recognized internationally in a list of states that are deemed to be vulnerable to money laundering operations. Perhaps a case of plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. In 1971, Pope Paul VI appointed Archbishop Paul Makinkos as head of the Institute for Religious Works otherwise known as the Vatican Bank. There was a bizarre relationship between Calvi and Marquinkus, who provided cover for Calvi's overseas operations, all the while being in the dark 
about Calvi's links to the Mafia and the sinister Masonic P2 Lodge. P2, it appears, was greatly influential and included among its members former government ministers, retired generals, top bankers, and members of the Italian Secret Service. The money laundering went on in a huge way. Marquinkus had provided Calvi with letters of patronage on behalf of the Vatican Bank, which amounted to a type of guarantee. Calvi used these to establish other banks and shell companies in Panama, the Bahamas, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, and South America. Calvi was handling huge sums of dirty money on behalf of the Mafia and P2. This not only cast doubt on the way Calvi died, but also on the way his secretary expired. Not so many people believe now that she committed suicide. It wasn't until 2006, 24 years after his death, that a letter sent by Calvi to Pope John Paul II was discovered. It read, Holiness, a possible collapse of the Ambrosiano Bank would provoke a catastrophe of unimaginable proportions in which the church will suffer the gravest damage. It must be avoided at all costs. It was me, following the mandate of your authoritative representatives, who arranged significant financing of several countries and politico-religious associations in the East and West. It was me in agreement with Vatican authorities who coordinated across the whole of South America the establishment of numerous banking entities mainly aimed at countering the penetration and expansion of neo-Marxist ideologies. It was me, finally, who is betrayed today by the very same authority for which I have always shown the utmost respect and obedience. The typewritten letter clearly bore Calvi's signature. Calvi was the main conduit through which Vatican money went, but he was also involved in other people's dirty money. And although he made gains, he also incurred huge losses and powerful and evil people sought revenge. In 1989, Roberto's son Carlo instructed a firm of private detectives to look into the matter further and examine in greater detail the scientific evidence. They undertook a reconstruction of the scaffold. Calvi was 62 when he died. He was overweight. He suffered from chronic vertigo. In the pitch darkness, he would have had to spot the scaffolding under the bridge, which was practically submerged in the high tide. Stuff his pockets and trousers flies with bricks. Clamber over a stone parapet and down a 12 foot long vertical ladder, then edge his way eight feet along the scaffolding. At that stage, he would have had to lower himself gingerly onto another scaffolding before putting his neck in a noose and throwing himself off. Each time the exercise was carried out, microscopic examination of shoes by a forensic chemist picked up traces of yellow paint with which the yellow scaffolding poles were stained. 
but the shoes Calvi was wearing at the time of death showed no such traces. This led to the conclusion that someone else had to have tied him to the scaffolding and killed him. By September 2003, now 20 years on, the City of London Police reopened the case as a murder inquiry. 21st century forensics and investigative techniques gave a different picture. By October 2005, five individuals had been charged with the murder of Roberto Calvi and stood trial in Rome. They included Carboni and Vitor. By June 2007, they had each been cleared of murder. The judge declaring after hearing 20 months of testimony that there was insufficient evidence to convict. But the court ruled nonetheless that Calvi's death was murder. The trial faced the difficulties that all historic prosecutions face. It was hard to produce convincing evidence after 25 years. Key witnesses were unwilling to testify, were untraceable or dead. It may well also be that people in the Italian hierarchy who ordered Calvi's death were not in the dock. The prosecution then launched a second investigation against Gelli and others, but that was dropped in 2009 because there was again insufficient evidence to argue that Gelli had played a role in planning or executing the murder. This gruesome case still holds many puzzles. Was there a Masonic element to Calvi's death? Was there something symbolic about the way he died? Was there something theatrical about it all? Or were the Mafia determined to make it plain to everyone that if people gambled with their money and lost, there would be grisly consequences? Undoubtedly, Calvi's death saved the Vatican from embarrassing and perhaps devastating revelations. For when he met his death in London, his secrets died with him. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Baines Law.